This morning we'll come from Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, for every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all the men who were the heads of the people of Israel. Before we study together this morning, I feel that I would be remiss if I did not express my deep appreciation to this good congregation for all the uh, expressions of concern on my on my behalf. Uh, Unexpected stay in the hospital this past week. But let me assure you that in many ways, it was one of the best weeks of my life. I uh, I got to meet some wonderful people and people were so kind to me. And then when Mia gave me a ride home. Thanks for the ride, Mia. <laughs> Want to make sure I got that covered. Uh, there were flowers waiting for us at home. There was barbecue waiting for us at home. By the way, the barbecue smelled even better than the flowers. And then the cards began to stack up. But most of all, the prayers that you prayed on my behalf, I am truly grateful. And I, I really believe that uh, the outcome was as good and as positive as it could have been because of the effective prayers of this church. Just one more reminder of why I love the university congregation. And then Andrew preached in my behalf uh, uh, last Sunday. He wasn't expecting to do that when the week began, but I appreciate so very much him doing that. And what a timely lesson, Andrew. And for those prayers that were prayed, so poignant so effective, so on target, and what a privilege it was to be a part of that worship as well, even though we were sitting on our sofa in the living room when that took place. Good to be back. Appreciate your being here this morning. One other word, and this is directed specifically to my brother Ed Redmond. I have on occasion sat in Bible classes where the teacher brought out a thought or two that I was going to share from the pulpit in the next hour. I don't think I've ever had anyone preach my whole lesson like, like Ed did, right down to the text. Uh, we kept looking, me and I kept looking at one another going, is he going to keep on repeating? So think of this not as a repetition for those of you who were in Ed's class, but as a reinforcement of those things that he talked about. There's one thing that dogs have in common, and that is they like to chase cars. I don't know what it is about a moving car that somehow begins to stir the interest and the adrenaline in, in, in the canines, but uh, I, I know in a couple of bulldogs that look like they, they chase parked cars, but you know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. But another thing they have in common is that they seldom ever catch those cars. I mean, what would a dog do once it caught a car? In a lot of respects, by the way, be turning to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. In a lot of respects, people also like to chase cars. By that, I mean they have their dreams, their goals, their aspirations, those things that they would like to attain in life. It may be uh, an academic, educational sort of goal. It may be something that has to do with their family. It may be occupational. And some of those dreams and aspirations, some of those cars, so to speak, we actually catch and uh, they can give us problems. 
read an article not long ago about people who win the lottery and how that so often, I think it was like in 87% of the cases, within two years, they're broke again. So some people think, hey, that would be wonderful if I could have that kind of windfall only to realize that it causes more problems than they ever had to start with. Some of them we don't catch, and it's best that, that we don't. And then some we catch, and they bring us a level of happiness and satisfaction. Otherwise, no one would ever set a goal for themselves, and no one would ever have dreams or aspirations. Now, here we are in Numbers chapter 13, and the children of Israel have been pursuing a worthy goal that, that God himself has set for them. You may remember, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, to Father Abraham, God had made that promise, I'm going to give you a land. By the way, it was a threefold promise, but we're going to be looking at only one aspect of it this morning. And Abraham did not know what that land was at the time. But still, to, the, um, to Abraham and to the Israelite people, God had started giving that, that, that dream, creating that goal for them. This is, this is something that I'm promising you. And we know that that goal was a good thing because God himself was the one who gave it to the Israelite people. So in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, those two chapters describe what happened when the, when the Israelites caught their car. When they finally got to the edge of the promised land, what happened to them as they are about to enter the promised land, or at least they should have been about to enter the promised land. And I believe we can learn some very important and valuable lessons as we look at the Israelites on the edge of the promised land. First thing I want us to do is to consider the setting. The Bible says, by the way, if you do have a Bible or a Bible on your device, please follow along. It's going to mean a whole lot more to you, I guarantee you, because I'm going to be pointing out specific verses as we walk through Numbers 13 and 14. They decided to establish their camp at Kadesh Barnea. Now, this is a place that would support their camp as well as provide a good attack point if such was necessary. Obviously, it was in that kind of geographical setting where they could, uh, they could keep on guard and watch out for the enemy. Now, they were close to Canaan at this point. And I'll remind you that Canaan is the promised land. So we're going to be using those two terms interchangeably in this lesson this morning. God instructed the spies, that was just read to you a moment ago, he instructed the spies to be sent out. Well, one spy from each of the 12 tribes. That's chapter 13, 1 through 3, if you want to look and follow along. And in that list of 12 names, I will guarantee you that only two of them stand out. Only two of them ring familiar. In fact, I've known of only one person in my life who could name all 12 spies, and that's because he went to the trouble to do so. For the most of us, we remember Joshua and Caleb, and we don't remember the names of the other 10 men, and it's for good reason that we don't. They belong in the hall of infamy, as we're going to see in just a moment. Look down in verses 17 through 20. And those verses indicate that the spies were basically sent to, to see what the land was like. It's, it's an intelligence gathering sort of a, a venture that they're on. And in terms of, basically in terms of two things. First of all, in terms of the productivity of the land. We want to know what's, what's the land like. Is it good land? Is it bad land? Is it fat or lean? Are there fruit-bearing trees? So we, we want to know what the resources are like in this land. Because remember, they're going to be occupying this land. They're going to be living there. 
We want to know what it's like. What does it have to offer? And can I raise my family there? Those were the questions that were being asked when the 12 spies went into the land. But also in terms of their military strength. Are the people there already in the land? They are, are they strong or weak? Are they few or many? Are the cities fortified or are they kind of like nomadic camps, you know, that are uh, improvised and they can be picked up and, and taken away at a moment's notice? They could also bring back some of the fruit of the land. After all, it was a t- the time for grapes to be harvested. Now, look at verses 21 through 24. It tells us that this spy mission was actually carried out. And all that we know about what they saw and experienced in the land of Canaan, we get from the report of the spies who came back from the land. Now, that just makes sense. I'm not telling you anything new that you don't already know. And, and what they said basically was, now, we, we've got some good news and some bad news. And they showed them, that is, the people of the Israelite camp, their fellow Israelites, they showed them the fruit of, of the land. That's verse 26. And they said, it is, in fact, a good land. It flows with milk and honey. Verse 27. By the way, I remember the little boy in Bible class studying this very same chapter. And the teacher raised the question, what does that sound like? A land that flows with milk and honey. And the little boy raised his hand and said, sticky. (laughs) Well, this is uh, figurative language. It is a land of, of produce, a land of plenty. And you're going to be well provided for. You won't have to worry where your next meal is coming from. But, and this is a mighty big caveat, the people are strong. And the cities are large and they are well fortified. That's verse 28 of our text. Now this is where Caleb interrupts and says, but we can take the land. Verse 30, thank God for Joshua and Caleb's in the world. Amen. The ten spies beg to differ, and they say, we are not able. And then they proceeded to give evidence for that doom and gloom assessment, what verse 32 calls a bad report. The King James actually calls it an evil report. I think that's probably closer. It wasn't just bad. It was evil because it lacked all semblance of faith in the promises of God. The people are of great size. And that just means, as compared to us, they are giants and we are as grasshoppers. That's verse 33. That tells you pretty much all that you need to know about the mentality of the ten spies that came back and gave that evil report. And then you turn the page, or maybe not, to the next chapter in Numbers chapter 14, and we get the people's reaction upon hearing those reports. So the ten spies have come back with an evil report. Doesn't matter what God says, we can't take it. The land is filled with giants. The cities are are large and fortified. We we just can't do it. And yet Joshua and Caleb beg to differ. And so the people have listened to these conflicting reports. And verse 1 says, they wept. That's an interesting reaction to me. I've read this a lot of times, I guarantee you. But I'm still intrigued by the fact that the people wept. At hearing those reports, I want to know what they're weeping over. Are they weeping over the report of Joshua and Caleb or over the report of the ten spies? And so they wept. Have you ever had some bad news that was so bad that you did not have the right words to be able to respond, to say anything to express your feelings at the time? All you could do was just cry. 
And that's where the Israelites are at this point in this saga. And once somebody had passed around a box of Kleenex and they dried their eyes, the biblical record says they grumbled. Verse 2, I don't know what your translation is and what the word might be there, but it's probably pretty similar. They, they grumbled, they complained. Uh, King James doesn't say bellyache, but that's the idea. If only we had, if only we had died in Egypt. Or even if the second best thing would be if we had just died here in the desert. Before we get to a place where we're supposed to be receiving the promise of a gift from God. And then we find all this horrible news that we really can't inhabit the land. We cannot conquer these people. And so they began to grumble. If only we had died in Egypt. Man, how is that for a gloomy opinion of the future? Somebody asks you, how do you like your new home? Well, I'll tell you what. I'd rather be dead than live here. Wow. But that's, but that's what they're saying. And that's, that's what they're feeling. And then the grumbling turns into rebellion. Mark this down, church. It almost always does. When people get in the mood and in the attitude, in the mindset of grumbling, almost always it will be followed by a rebellion. Verses 3 and 4, we're still in Numbers 14, says that they decided that what they needed to do was to appoint a new leadership. And let's just go back to Egypt and let's, uh, let's live there again. People are collectively kind of saying, oh, for, for the good old days. Man, have you forgotten what the good old days were like? Have you forgotten how soon it was, how recently it was that you were in Egyptian bondage? Have you forgotten that the average lifespan of an adult Israelite in Egyptian bondage was six months? Have you forgotten what it was like to live and work in the mud pits every day and to know that your children are going to have to work there until they die a premature death because of the hardship? Have you forgotten all of that? Well, I guess, I, I guess we have. Apparently, their collective memories had faded about what they had experienced back in Egypt that prompted their leaving that place of enslavement in the first place. And, and Moses and Aaron, who are the two God-appointed leaders of the Israelites, actually fall on their faces. That's verse 5. I mean, they are so overwhelmed by the pessimism, the negativism, the lack of faith on the part of the Israelite people that they just fall on their faces. But then Joshua and Caleb speak up again. That's verses 6 through 9. Check it out. Once they had quieted the crowd, they say, listen, the land is not only good, the land is exceedingly good. Maybe we did, you didn't hear us the first time. So let's repeat that and let's add an adjective to it. It is exceedingly good. And not only that, God is with us, and we know that because it was God's idea that we come here and that we conquer and dwell in this land in the first place. And the people that live in the land are unprotected. Again, this is Joshua and Caleb's assessment. They are unprotected. That is, they're not a military people. And, and so we can go in w without having to worry too much about their military prowess. And then verse 10 says the Israelites, the Israelites wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb. It's one of those situations where if you don't like the message, you kill the messenger. We cannot put up with that faith talk anymore. Hearing you talk about how that God has a plan and a dream for us and that we're going to live in this promised land when we know better, 
Let's just kill Joshua and Caleb and we won't have to listen to them talk like that anymore. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see God's response to the people's attitude. The Bible says he was greatly displeased. Well, I'm not surprised. How displeased was he? The Bible says he was ready to destroy them. Now, I'm not real sure, but I'm pretty sure, if I've traced it back far enough, that this is the first time since the universal flood in Genesis chapter 6, where God has gotten so upset and disappointed with people that he has said, I think I'll just destroy them and start over. I mean, that's, that is a mighty anger, isn't it? For God to get to the point where I, I'm just going to destroy them all. These are, I realize, are my people. I have promised them this land. They are my chosen people for a reason. They are all the sons of Abraham. God understands all that. But at this point, he's just ready to to, to mark them off and be through with them. And they had already forgotten. Look at the latter part of verse 11. God says, apparently, they've, they've already forgotten all the signs that I performed among them. Well, there were a number of signs that God performed in protecting the people and getting them out of Egyptian bondage. But the, but the biggie one that comes to my mind, of course, and maybe yours as well, they had already forgotten what had happened when they were, were trapped up by the pursuing Egyptian armies against the edge of the Red Sea. What do we do? How do we get away from them? They decided to come after us and take us back into bondage. We can't have that. But here we are with the sea in front of us with mountains on each side and the Egyptian armies behind us and God opened the sea up and allowed them to walk across on dry land. How recently that happened, how soon they had forgotten. That same God is still looking after us and protecting us and guiding us with his eternal hand. But they had forgotten all about that. And let me say, dear friends, that that easily can be one of our greatest challenges as well. How that God has answered our prayers. How that God has worked in our lives. How that he in his providence has seen us through and he has worked all things together for them that love the Lord. And he may have done that in your life. I know he has done that in my life over and over and over again. But when we get up against the wall, when we get up against the edge of the promised land, when we begin to assess the strength of the enemy, all of a sudden we forget all about what God has done for us in the past. Shame on us. And, and once we look at, at this text, we come to appreciate that, that this is really a, a kind of a cyclical history. This has happened over and over again, and it will happen even in the future with the Israelite people. But Moses then gives a speech. This is verses 13 through 18, if you want to catch up in, in your Bible. And he gives a speech, and he pleads with God on behalf of the people. And he asks God to pardon the people. What a magnanimous heart. I'm not sure if I'd heard all of that discussion that if I, could, if I could have done that, God just please forgiven them. Pardon them one more time and let them take this land as you have promised. And God does pardon them. But watch this. There will still be consequences of their faithlessness. And, and that needs to be a lesson to us today in terms of brief application We can be forgiven of sin, folks, but still have to suffer the consequences 
and the repercussions of that sin. I hope that you heard me. Because there's some who are contemplating rebellion against God in your hearts at this point in your life. Don't do it. Please don't do it. Even if you can be forgiven, and you can. There's no sin that God is not willing to forgive if we are willing to repent. Make that clear, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But we'll still have to suffer the consequences and the scars of that sin. And God says, here's, here's going to be the penalty. No adults will be able to enter the promised land except for two. And I'm going to reward Joshua and Caleb for their faith. And that's why they're going to be allowed to go in. Because they believed me that the land could be taken and they had faith in the promises of God. That's verses 30 through 34. The Israelites were doomed. Watch this very closely. Here's the repercussion. Here are the consequences for them. The Israelites were doomed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. What should have been an 11-day journey turned into a 40-year wilderness wandering. And that was, through God's providence and irony, one day for each, or one year for each day that the spies had spied out the land. He picked that number, 40. So for 40 years, you're going to wander in the wilderness. And God said that all the adults would die in the wilderness and only their children would be allowed to go in and inhabit the promised land. Well, the 10 spies who gave a bad report, look at verse 37. They all died by the plague. So they're out of the picture. God says there's not only going to be eternal, there will be immediate consequences for their rebellion So they all catch the plague and they die. Verse 39 says, the people mourn greatly, but guess what? Too little, too late. They had already fumbled the ball. Now this represents, by the way, an interesting turn of events in the taking of the promised land. When God said that they could and should take the promised land, they said, we can't do it. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I have read this text dozens, maybe hundreds of times over the span of my life, and I never really noticed verses 39 through 45, how that the people now decide we want to take the land. It was a good idea after all. Maybe we should, and maybe it took a few deaths along the way, like the 10 spies who died by the plague, but now they've they've learned some kind of lesson, and suddenly they say, it's not like a good idea. Why Why don't we go ahead and take the promised land? When God said they could, they said we can't. And now that God says they couldn't and they shouldn't, they said we can. That's verse 39. So the children of Israel were, they were appropriately named. They were children in every sense of the word. In their constant vacillating, and they're all in the determination to always do the exact opposite of whatever it was that God told them to do. Doesn't that sound like children? And that's what they were doing. That's how spiritually immature they were. And when they attempted to take the land without God's approval or his presence among them, they were soundly defeated. Verse 45. Mark that down. Now remember, God had, had promised the Israelites a land flowing with milk and honey, but at the edge of the promised land, they got cold feet. And decided, hey, doesn't matter what God said, we, we can't do that. Doesn't matter what Joshua and Caleb said, we just can't do that. And they seemed to forget that God had given them the marching orders and that God had promised to be with them every step of the way. And then when God said they could not enter, they attempted to take the land without God's help. That didn't work out. It never does. Now, this is an interesting story. 
But how in the world does it apply to us? I mean, you may be thinking, I, I don't have a promised land. I, I, none of the things that happened to them have happened to me. But I, I suggest that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. These Old Testament records are important, folks, because we can learn valuable lessons from them about our own circumstances. And let's talk about the application for just a few minutes, and then the lesson will be yours. You see, many times we face the prospect of entering our own promised land, and there are great rewards that lie just around the corner for us in our Christian lives as well. But often we, we hesitate on the border, and we don't enter. And the problem is exactly the same problem that the Israelites had. We look at ourselves as grasshoppers, and the opponent, the obstacle, we look at them as if they are giants. And that's when we assume that we're all alone in this endeavor, and we forget that God has promised to be with us every step of the way as well. Every step of our Christian journey, God has promised to be with us and to equip us with whatever it is that we need to be able to live successfully and victoriously for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're we're somewhat like that dog that chases the cars. We, We pursue the promised land, but when we get to the edge of it, we don't know exactly what to do. And we become fearful and afraid, and we don't enter. In in such cases, we just need to examine our goals. That is what we're trying to accomplish. That's the first place. First thing we need to do is, what is it that that you're wanting to do? What is it that that is your promised land? What's your goal, your aspiration for life? Is it something that has to do with a spiritual dimension? Especially if it is, then we need to carefully identify this question. Is this, in fact, the will of God? Are you hearing me, church? I hope you are. Is this, in fact, the will of God? Now, I know that that isn't always clear-cut. There will be times when you're contemplating a new job or moving to a new city or doing this or that, and you're not really sure if this is exactly what God wants me to do. But in many situations, in fact, in most situations that have to do with a spiritual dimension in our lives, we will be able to determine by gathering all the facts, praying for wisdom from God, James 1, 5, whether or not this is the will of God. Because if our goals are, are, are wrong... Or or at least if they're not the best, we're settling for good when we could, in fact, have the best, and that's what God wants for us, then we shouldn't be pursuing that dream in the first place. But if we've examined the goal, and we've prayed about it, and the goal is right, and if we have come to believe that God really wants us to pursue that goal, then we should not, we should not stop on the edge of the promised land. God has great reward for you just around the corner, but you're going to have to take the land, you're going to have to take the dream, you're going to have to drive through with the aspiration in mind that this is something that I'm doing for my own spiritual journey's sake and for the glory and the honor of God, and I'm not going to stop on the edge of the promised land. You see, every goal, every spiritual, this is just a personal opinion of mine, I mark it as such. Every spiritual objective that we can have in life ought to have two parts. Number one, is this the will of God? That is the most important question. Is this the will of God? Number two, if we've determined that it is, the second step is quite simple. Full steam ahead. I wish I could have been there and preached that sermon to the Israelites. But then Moses and Aaron 
they did a much better job than I could ever have done. But, but we need to hear that from time to time, don't we? We need to be reminded, hey, that we are the victors and not the victims. That greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. First John 4, 4. Some of you need to put that on your refrigerator. Or better yet, etch that on the fleshly tablets of your heart. And remember that God has promised to be with us every step of the way. So to help in application as we end this study, let's ask what are some of the giants that we face. And, and the big, biggest one that I can think of that would be applicable to all of us corporately as the church is evangelizing the world. And we've been really focusing on that for the last 14 months. God wants us to start right here in our own Jerusalem, Montgomery, Alabama, and to evangelize our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family, and, and then to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and carrying the good news of the gospel. I know that. I have no doubt that that is God's will for his church because that's in the marching orders. Now let's put things in proper perspective here. How big is that task? Did you know that if all the unsaved people were to line up single file outside your door, the line would reach around the world 30 times. To make matters even more serious, the line would grow by 20 miles every day. If you were to drive at 50 miles an hour for 10 hours a day, it would take you four years and 40 days just to get to the end of the line of lost souls. And by then it would have grown by 30,000 miles. Is this a daunting task to carry the gospel to every creature? Absolutely. Can we do it? Absolutely. Will God be with us? as we carry the good news to our friends and neighbors in Montgomery, Alabama? Absolutely. He has promised, go make disciples. Remember the promise that comes at the end, and I will be with you always. I don't think that he would have given us the command if he had not included the promise. Because we need to hear that kind of assurance, don't we, from time to time, that God will be with us in our endeavor as a church every day of our lives. So, so the task is huge, but God is on the side of the soul winner. And the bottom line is, we can take the world for Christ when we decide that's what we want to do, when we decide to make the effort. And, and we need more missionaries willing to go to foreign lands, no doubt about it. But there are many ways that we can carry the gospel without ever even leaving our own house. I mean, shut-ins can do it. World Bible School is one perfect example of how we can evangelize the world without ever leaving our own home. And then there are other works of the church to consider. I'm just saying that we should try looking up and looking out and seeing the land that flows with milk and honey. And to see the fields that are white already unto harvest, just as Jesus told his disciples. And we can see opportunities for much good all around us. Opportunities that will carry with them great rewards, such as saving souls and making the church grow and, and helping the poor and edifying the members, causing the church of our Lord to be built up and not torn down. But the problem comes, and Ed identified that problem in class this morning, is when we start focusing on the obstacles. And when we start looking out there at the world or even at our own crime-ridden city, and we begin to say, man, there's a lot of giants out there. And this old boy right here, he's just a grasshopper. Not with God on your side. You need to stop that kind of faithless thinking and that kind of talk. Notice I said, 
The problem comes when we focus on the obstacles, and I said focusing on and not taking into account. Let me draw one more point very quickly from that Old Testament text. Joshua and Caleb saw everything in Canaan, in the land of promise, that the other ten spies saw. They saw the fortified cities, they saw the giants, they saw everything that they saw. They just, they took that into account. But they figured if, if God is with us, and he is, this is not worth losing any sleep over. And so let's do it. And the trouble comes in our lives when we start concentrating on the negatives and we develop this grasshopper mentality and we ask ourselves, how can grasshoppers ever overcome giants? Somebody told me this years, decades ago now, that, uh, and, and they were being very cynical, tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. There are four steps to any church building program. Number one, we can't build it. Number two, we can't pay for it. We can't fill it. Look what we've done. That's pretty much true, and you find that, that cycle chronicle throughout Scripture. In a broader way, here's the grasshopper thinking in the modern church. We can't afford it. We're not big enough to do that. It's never been done that way before. We tried that, and it didn't work, or it can't be done, at least not around here. People in our community have gospel-hardened hearts. You can't just go share the gospel with anybody. Listen to this. I want to give you just, a, I've got a, a list, but we're out of time. These are examples of ideas and inventions that the people who invented these things had to overcome the disbelief of the populace and, and kind of the inertia of motionlessness in order to be able to come up with these things. The first successful cast iron plow invented in the United States in 1797, was rejected by farmers under the theory that cast iron poisoned the land and it actually stimulated the growth of weeds. Sounds plausible to me. A learned authority, let me up that, Annie, just a little bit. A learned authority in the United States declared that the introduction of the railroad would require the building of many insane asylums. Here's why. They said since people would be driven mad by watching locomotives going across our countryside. So we'd, we'd better build some insane asylums before we start building this, this iron horse, this railroad. In Germany, it was proven by experts, experts in quotes, if trains went at the frightful speed of 15 miles an hour, excuse me for the graphic nature, that blood would begin to spurt from the noses of the passengers. At that frightful speed, as well as passengers suffocating as they went through the tunnels. Uh, let me skip a couple. I, I'm going to give you this last one because it's so misogynistic and so wrong. In, in 1881, when the New York YMCA announced typing lessons for women. Remember, eight, 1881. Did I say 1981 the first time? Anyway, if so, I stand correct. 1881. Back a ways, when the New York YMCA announced typing lessons for women, there were vigorous protests that took place in the streets based on the grounds that the female constitution would break down under the strain of typing. They can give birth to babies, but they cannot type. And you can go on and on with people that had to overcome that kind of grasshopper thinking to accomplish anything. So, so here's the wrap up. As individuals, 
And as congregations of God people, we, we confront giants of one kind or another every day of our lives. Every, everybody is fighting some kind of battle. You've got some giants that you confront every day. And, and God wants us to, to share our faith with those around us. But you know, when I, I just think about going next door to invite my neighbor to church or maybe to a personal Bible study. I start feeling like a grasshopper. My, my neighbor starts looking like a giant. Bottom line is we need to overcome that grasshopper mentality in the church of the Lord because, folks, we've been too little, too late, too long. Jesus tells us plainly to put the kingdom first in our lives, Matthew 6, 33. And yet even some of God's own children want to put everything else in the world first and then wonder why God does not bless their lives spiritually. Even when it comes to the foundational decision to become a child of God. Should I obey the gospel? Should I become a disciple of Jesus Christ? We tend to ask, how can I live for Christ in this wicked, wicked world that we're living in today? This kind of reminds me, and I'm going to leave you with this, of a conversation I had with, with a fellow preacher one time who was, had been released from the congregation that he had been preaching for. And when I asked him why, he said it was due to illness and fatigue. They were sick and tired of me. From my heart to yours, here's what I'm sick and tired of. Faithless talk. I had someone tell me just a few weeks ago, Brother Randy, I don't know what we're going to do. The church is just dying. Made me want to sing Sing and be happy, you know. No, just the opposite effect. Well, if the church is dying, there's only one remedy. Let's, let's share the word and start planting the seed in the hearts of people. It isn't dying where I am. I'm looking out at, a, at an almost filled audience and knowing that there's several hundred who are joining us online. We don't need grasshopper thinking in the church of the Lord. We need giant thinking. We need to be giant slayers, don't we? And it's about time that we started doing that, and the only way we can do that is to change the way we think. And just like Ed said in class this morning, this is not patting ourselves on the back and saying, look what we've accomplished because we're great people of great faith and we belong in Hebrews chapter 11. No, there's none of that for a child of God. It's all because of what God is doing. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might is what the word says, Ephesians 6 and verse 10. And once we get that straight and know that the power lies with a great, sovereign, almighty God who can work through us even above what we're able to imagine, Ephesians 3 verse 20, then we'll be able to turn the corner on this thing and we'll be able to march for the master and win the world for Jesus Christ. But not until then. I'm here to announce that Jesus will help us to overcome every giant that we ever have to encounter. At least that was Paul's assessment of the situation. You remember from a Roman prison, he wrote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. So we live in a world where many feel like grasshoppers as compared to the giants around us, and as a result, we never enter our promised land. And we need to ask, do we see ourselves as grasshoppers compared to asked to conquer, told to conquer a land with giants? And the answer is, it shouldn't be that way if, if in fact, we are doing God's will. It's been said that one, one person and God makes a majority. 
truth of the matter is God alone makes a majority. So we just have to make sure that we're on the right side. If God says do it, doesn't matter what it is. If God says, doesn't matter what the year is, doesn't matter how postmodern we may be, doesn't matter what the, the uh, surveys say about the nuns are winning, that is, what is your church affiliation, the nuns is what most people in America are marking today. We can read that kind of stuff and we can go home and throw ourselves a pity party. Or we can say, I serve a powerful, almighty God and I am a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken and that will never be destroyed, and that will last forever. And when the Lord comes back to call his own, I don't know whether Montgomery, Alabama will still be standing, but I know what will be standing is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, his eternal church. And so I want to be a part of that winning team, and I hope you do as well. Tom Southall was a student at Colorado College, and like many young men, he played football, and he played it really well. In fact, he was on scholarship for his four years at that particular institution. And that's not so unusual, except for the fact that Tom had only one arm. Tom could have said, hey, I, I can't play football. A lot of guys with two arms can't even play football. The field is a land of giants, and every one of those giants has two arms. I, I've checked. But Tom did not let that handicap, either physical or, or mental, stop him. And my message to you today is very simple. We don't need to be grasshoppers afraid of giants. Let God help you with any and all the giants that you face in your life. And if you need to become a child of God this morning, I guarantee you this, you are among a group of people who want nothing more in life than to see you give the Lord your heart and your life to be baptized into Christ based upon your faith in him, your desire to repent of all past sins and say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I want to live the way God has, has me to live and wants me to live. And then to be baptized, to have every one of my sins washed away. And then I'm going to go be, I'm going to be a giant killer. If you want to be a part of that number, why don't you come while we stand and sing?